So when I first submitted my title, I took it from a quote from one of my Board of Lady Managers, our citizens don't think much of the Indians, Montana women, and representations of Native Americans in at the Chicago World's Fair. But as I got to thinking about the theme of the conference and considering that my key character, Emma Cowan, um, was a victim of the Nez Perce War in Yellowstone, then I thought maybe I should have titled it this, Pioneer Women Remembering Wonderland, Emma Cowan's narrative of her 1877 captivity. So you can choose either title you like. <laughs> I like them both. You got this one, but I like this one too. So I'm going to start with Emma and George Cowan, who their story is often told in general as being the tourists who were taken captive during the Nez Perce War. And it's often told whenever you hear the Nez Perce War story, you know that there were tourists, but not often people know about the specific events. There were probably about 25 total tourists that the Nez Perce came in contact with um, in August of 1877, between when they entered the park on the west side and exited um, on the um, Clark Fork. But the Cowan's story, theirs is particular because they're the only two, she and her sister were the only two women. So Emma and George were on their second anniversary, their second wedding anniversary trip, and her brother Frank had come up from Helena, had suggested they do this trip into Yellowstone. They said, yes, that's a great idea. So she brought along her 12-year-old sister and her brother Frank. And along the way, um, she had remembered, when she gave her account of the um, story in 1903, so her account of the Nez Perce War we have almost 30 years later, and her, Frank also gave an account. So most of the accounts of the war were given somewhat later as part of the pioneer reminiscences kind of mode that happened in the late 19th and early 20th century. In 1873, she had first visited Yellowstone um, as a young woman, and she had described that the road through Yellowstone Canyon below Cinnabar was scarcely more than a trail, but by careful driving, unhitching the horses, and drawing the wagon by hand, we made it in safely. We found an acquaintance or two, a small hotel and a bathhouse. So in 1873, there was already a small hotel and a bathhouse. Um, they stayed at Ma Mammoth only. She wasn't able to go to the geysers. And so she liked that they could get these souvenirs, these coated baskets that had been dipped um, basically in the, the flow so that you could have them kind of encrusted, as she called it. Um, the trip to the geysers from Mammoth was 75 miles on horseback, which they didn't want to do because it was too hard. We spent a very pleasant two weeks at Mammoth. Several parties came and went to the geysers during our stay and they gave us many interesting accounts. But words they said seemed inadequate to express the wonders they had seen. So they told them, one and all you would say, you must see them yourself. So she kind of held on to this. So then four years later when she and her husband um, on their second anniversary are going through the park, then she's telling her younger sister, her 12 year old sister, well back when I was here the first time, I really wanted to see the geysers, but we couldn't. So, um, let's review the Nez Perce War just really quickly. Um, I just have Looking Glass here. It was kind of the main war chief up through the big hole, um, and then kind of got displaced a little bit because he was kind of blamed for the uh, tribe being caught off guard um, by Gibbons' troops at the big hole. So the Battle of the Big Hole had happened. They had just done the Battle of Camas Meadows there um, near Kilgore, Idaho. And from Kilgore, they had followed through Island Park and gone around the lake and had entered the park, were entering the park. Um, 
and they'd gone over Targhee Pass, of course, and their purpose in entering the park was to find refuge with the crows, who were their long-time um, allies, and thought that if the crows could give them refuge, then that would protect them from Howard's troops. You all know the story. Um, along the way, they actually captured a guide, a, kind of a trapper and hunter, per se, tourist also, um, Shively, to help guide them out of the park, which I find an interesting statement. Um, considering the Nez Perce did know the area, but they needed somebody to kind of get them a direction out of the park that would keep them away from Howard's troops. So this is where we then bring in our Cowans and the Carpenters and then some of Frank's buddies that he brought along from Helena. There were three other guys that came along with, from Helena. And so they're in need of, the, the tribe was in need of horses and supplies as well as rest. Um, this is only just a few days past the big hole and past <coughs> Camps Meadows, and so they're in, they're still in mourning, they're still in grieving. Um, they, when they went around Henry's Lake, so uh, being one of the, probably the only two or three Idahoans here, um, I figured I should do a little Idaho call out. So where are my Idahoans? Anybody? See, I told you. I told you. So um, here's uh, the Hayden Expedition photo of Henry's Lake in 1872, and you can see what she describes. Oops. Uh oh. What did I just do? There we go. What's the pointer? Which one's the pointer? The top. Oh, there we go. So you see the ranch here. So they would have seen when she describes seeing, she describes in her reminiscence seeing cabins and houses, she calls them houses, around the lake. Um, and so this would have been the Sawtell Ranch that had been established um, just before this, just a couple years before this. And so they encountered the Sawtell Ranch and so did the um, Hayden Expedition actually sat down with the Sawtell and some of his his handymen. So, um, meanwhile, so that by the time they make it into the park, and then she gives a really good description of the Geyser Basin, which I thought I'd give you some of these quotes. Um, we were in fine health and enjoying the outdoor life to the utmost. I'm sorry about the font, but it just kind of worked out with this. We seemed to be in a world of our own. Not a soul had we seen save our own party. With the park teeming with life as it is today in 1903, one can scarcely realize the intense solitude which then pervaded this land, fresh from the Maker's hand, as it were. So they entered the lower geyser basin, and she, this was our first sight of the geysers with columns of steam rising from innumerable vents, and the smell of the inferno in the air from the numerous sulfur springs made us simply wild with the eagerness of seeing all things at once. So I figured since this was a conference about Yellowstone, I should include some of her descriptions of Yellowstone, which I find really engaging. We ran and shouted and called to each other to see this or that. Can you imagine? And without all those boardwalks. So they're like running over all that stuff that we're not allowed to touch. Anyway. She's not as impressed with the mud pots. I didn't think those were cool. A stick, this one I thought was funny because the tourists today need this. A stick thrown in was quickly sucked out of sight and the fate of a human being falling in could easily be imagined. It gave one some creepy feeling. They should put that on all the brochures. When they <laughs> right? For all the people that are constantly stepping in those things lately. Um, they explored every nook and cranny of the lower geyser basin, and she describes they did watch Fountain Geyser go off. The trails led from lower geyser to uh, every direction, including to upper geyser, and the falls, and Yellowstone Lake. And Frank and his buddies actually took a little side trip over the lake, you know, because guys in their 20s will leave the family behind and go do their thing and so they came back later but so they're still hanging out at the geyser basin they went to upper geyser and they watched castle 
um, go off. Here you see Castle here on the right, this image that I've given you. Um, the giantess was there, but she said it never actually went off while they were, they were there, and they watched the Grand go off. Um, I think that one just once or twice. I was sure, she said, the earth would be rent asunder and we would be swallowed up. At night, with our heads pillowed on the breast of Mother Earth, one seemed in close proximity to Dante's Inferno. I think a spirit must have visited the park in some remote age for inspiration. So, speaking of inspiration, this gave me an idea that somebody should do a research project on how many times the Yellowstone is referred to in terms of hell, the devil, evil, all of that. Wouldn't that be a great research project for one of your students? Okay. Alrighty, so I took this from the National Park Service's map guide to show you. It just kind of gives you the sense of what's going on. The actual trek of the Nez Perce through the park is kind of confusing because besides the main camp they also were sending out scouting parties in different directions and Howard's troops were sending out scouting parties in different directions since the different scouting parties are interacting with different groups and then that puts different tourists in so it's kind of confusing to follow it all but today you only have to follow the Callens so you're lucky I'm not making you follow all those other Helena guys um, so this shows you where the Right about the the forks, like where the gibbon and the fire hole come together, is kind of where this all starts to culminate. And uh, so, right about here, after they had, eh, so you see here, like right here at the forks, is where the different things happen. And then here's lower geyser, and then um, upper geyser. And they, when they finally did get kidnapped, so they were taken. So George would be shot here, and then. Emma and Frank and Ida, um, and then the couple of the Helena guys, one was also shot and he pretended he played dead. And then another one kind of snuck away. Anyway, so I'm not gonna make you follow all them. My point is Emma and Ida and Frank were carried across this up past Mary's Lake right here. Um, and then they connected over here. The Nez Perce then will continue, the main camp will continue to leave the park this way because they want to head out to find the crows, which of course will lead ultimately to disappointment when the crows turn them down and say, we can't help you. Not because they didn't want to, but because they were afraid of how that would, what the government would do to them. But what's not known is the crows actually did um, give unofficial help to the Nez Perce, like secret help, and um, oral histories among the crows say that they even took some of the babies um, and kept them with them to keep them safe and gave them supplies and did some things but officially said no we can't help you because they didn't want to get in trouble so then this is the main part where emma and ida and frank are with the nest person then they're let go here and then they're taken back to mammoth and the nest person then continue and leave the park so this is kind of where they split so this is the main just for a couple of days they were only with the tribe for a couple of days george meanwhile is here and she thinks he's dead to get into the steps. So we also received, when they, when they met General Sherman, who had come down from Mammoth, right about the Firehole River, we also received a very unpleasant impression that we might meet the Indians before we reached home. No one seemed to know where they were going. But a scout assured them that, quote, they would be perfectly safe if we would remain in the upper basin as the Indians would never come into the park. So this is one of the first, one of two times in her narrative that she describes this long-standing myth that the Indians are afraid of the park and they won't go into it, which 
And she says, by the way, um, Sherman's troops didn't seem too excited to stay here either because they took off after, you know, so they're afraid too. Um, okay, so I have just a little timeline of their captivity just so that you can kind of see this. Um, on the night before the captivity, they had celebrated in camp and they were singing and even dressing up as kind of outlaws and pretending to shoot each other and they had their guitars and everything and not knowing that the Nez Perce were probably very close by actually watching their camp festivities. And then on the morning of October 21st, um, they were getting their breakfast ready and some of the first Nez Perce warriors came into camp and um, started to ask for food, etc. Um, George Cowan got a little testy with them and kind of shoved them away and said, get away from our food. And I suspect that that's one of the reasons why they shot George is because he was kind of cantankerous with them right from the beginning and wasn't helpful. Um, they did take the horses here and then so the main camp began to head toward Mary's Lake um, with the raiders, with the, all of them. So George is at this point um, uninjured and still with them. Then on the morning of the 25th, violence then erupts and George Cowan is shot and left for dead and there's a couple different incidents. Um, He's also, um, he's shot a couple times. Uh, Emma tries to step in to save him, they yank her away, and then that's when he's shot in the head, and that's when she thinks that he's dead. His first shot was in the leg. Um, and then he was another warrior hit him in the head with a rock, and so they left him behind. So she thinks he's dead at this point. The main camp then proceeds on toward Mary's Lake. Cowan, by the evening, so he was kind of out for about four hours, and he wakes up sees that everybody's gone and he doesn't know what to do, but he decides to basically crawl back to the previous encampment. Um, by the end of the day, Frank, Emma, and Ida are actually released um, after they have passed Mary's Lake. So all of this is occurring over the course of hours. It all seems like it's happening boom, boom, and it's like stretched out over hours. Then George then crawls, or yeah, George crawls back to Lower Geyser Basin and then onto the fire hole where then one of the um, scouting parties for Howard's troops finds him there. Okay, so meanwhile, Emma, Frank, and Ida are found by troops near Tower Falls just after they had been released. Um, then they're escorted from Mammoth to Fort Ellis. So on, on August 27th, they're already at Mammoth. And then some of the troops are given the assignment to take them back to Fort Ellis. So then they head back up the Gallatin. And Cowan then, on, October, on August 29th, is found by some of Howard's scouts. Meanwhile, one of the other Helena guys who had been injured and played dead, he was found by Howard's troops on August 30th, and then Cowan is treated by Howard's surgeon, and this is where he actually meets Howard himself, is on this day. Emma, by the way, still thinks that, jo that George is dead through all of this, and actually doesn't find out that he's alive until like a month later. So, uh, meanwhile, regarding letting them go, Yellow Wolf famously said in his um, interviews much later in his life, he said, the women were given horses, the man was made to go afoot, they must not travel too, too fast. Food is given for their living while going to some town or wherever they lived. And he said, we did not want to kill these women. Ten of our women had been killed at the big hole and many others wounded, but the Indians did not think of that at all. We let them go without hurt to find their own people. And overwhelmingly, Emma describes how the Nez Perce were very kind to her, um, when it was raining one night um, and she was wearing a buffalo blanket that they'd given her, one of the women came over and put a canvas over her to waterproof her. They gave them food, um, let them sleep. This is the only known photo that we have of the Raidersburg party taken at the time of the kidnapping. So this is um, some of their escorts. So here's Ida, who is 12 years old. 
and then there's Emma, and then there's her brother Frank, and this is on their way back from Mammoth, so I think they're probably up closer to Gardner when this picture was taken. Um, anyway, so I don't, you, you can't really see her face, you can't see, really see their face, but their, their bonnets make them look like they're kind of, just kind of exhausted, and at this point she still thinks George is dead, and doesn't know that he's still alive, so it's kind of a compelling story. And of course, Joseph, this picture was taken of Joseph in, on October 23rd, just three weeks after his capture. Um, and by all accounts, by all of Emma's accounts, and the other tourists that all interacted with Inez Perus, Joseph was a very um, kindly person who had a very gentle and um, kind of pleasant nature. It was described as kind of a pleasant nature, but definitely grieving. So this is a person that was kind of, kind of melancholy, I think, but also kindly. Um, so then, I looked, so in her account, her 1903 account is really interesting, and I'm, I'm going to come back to the Chicago World's Fair, which was 10 years before she gives this account. Um, but one of the interesting things of her account is that she repeats, again, this mis misconception about Indians in the park. We are told that the Indian is superstitious. To him, anything out of the ordinary must be possessed by the evil one. The phenomena of the geysers account for the fact, very probably, that this land is not now and never has been Indian country which if you've been to any of the sessions yesterday, you know that this is completely not true. So obviously, even by 1903, even before maybe some of the later park superintendents begin to reinforce this idea, they're, they're already getting this idea reinforced. And General Sherman's scout had told them the same thing, and that was even at the time of the war. So the military is already using this idea as justification for you know, trying to convince people that the Indians wouldn't come in here. Few Indian trails are found within the boundaries of the park as they are in other parts of the West. Not true. Yet this year of all others, the Indians were very much in evidence in the National Park, <laughs> as we found to our sorrow. So they don't come through here. Well, except for when we were there, they were all over the place. <laughs> um, we were thankful, however, that it was the Nez Perces we encountered rather than a more hostile tribe as they were partially civilized and generally peaceful. So you see sometimes Emma's kind of latent racism peppered throughout, but at the same time a common perception and somewhat accurate that the Nez Perce were peaceful to Euro-Americans, which they had been up to the Nez Perce War. So now, 16 years later, so we're shifting gears now. 16 years later, um, Chicago World's Fair is held in Chicago, obviously. And Montana, like other western states and territories, is preparing for the fair for the purposes of creating an exhibit. So most states and territories could choose to have a building at the fair. You had to apply for a building location and then kind of get a license. And Montana also had, I wonder if I have, hang on. Okay, I'll talk about the Board of Lady Managers. So the, the territorial legislature organized this um, um, Board of Managers, but then they also organized the Board of Lady Managers, which was their purpose was to organize all of the women of the state. So two of Montana's women were actually on the national board. You'll meet them in a second. And then the state board was made up of kind of like the highest, most elite women in the state, as you might imagine. Typical of women's clubs in the late 19th century, women's clubs were often the wives of the wealthiest, most prominent citizens in every community. And Montana was no different. So it's board of lady managers was made up of um, both on the national level, the state level, and the county levels, the, those that were the most prominent in their communities. Um, so one woman was selected to represent each county's what was called a Colombian Association or a Colombian group, however they wanted to name it. 
Um, and then that was directed by the head, the main board of lady managers out of Helena, who were in Helena and they could have direct um, contact with the legislature. County presidents then could choose their boards within their, their county or volunteers where they would interact with the women all over their county. And as you know, in 1893, a lot of these Montana counties were still very rural. Just checking my time. Oh, I've only got four, four minutes. Okay. So counties decided on exhibit items to go back to Chicago for the exhibit in Montana building or other spaces. Now, a lot of the women still approached this like it was a county fair, like, here's my, my jar of peaches. But that's not what Chicago wanted. They didn't want examples of, you know, my peaches and my quilt. They wanted um, fine artwork and construction and examples of minerals and things that were reflected Montana boosterism or world boosterism, American boosterism. So most of the women on the Montana Board of Lady Managers as well as the county level came from elite Montana society. Um, and sometimes, obviously, middle-class women and as you get more local, but even on the county level, um, the women tended to be the wives of mine owners and legal officials and judges and that kind of thing. So you're, you see this kind of elitism, this classism reflected throughout. Now, some of the themes that I'm going to be exploring in my larger work on this is Obviously, Western boosterism as Montana is, you know, in the middle of a horrible depression. Montana suffered probably worse than other states, except maybe Nevada and Colorado. Um, and so they're trying this boosterism, but these county women are also struggling financially. And so it's really di difficult to get them inspired to work for the fair while they're also you know, like, we want you to do this and we want you to do this. Well, but we have no money. Anyway, so that's one fair. Um, another, another theme, and this is what I uh, want to emphasize today, is this aspect of native relics and artifacts. And so um, when we bring Emma back into this story, she's part of this larger movement throughout all of these counties to collect all of the native relics from your counties that you can send to the fair. Um, and then of course pioneer memories, and they were specifically sought out. We were looking for the earliest pioneers, and the Laura Howie in Montana and Helena would say, we're looking for your pioneer stories. We want your pioneer women. And so there's very much a conscious effort to highlight and to celebrate that first generation of pioneer families and pioneer women to Montana, of which Emma was one because her parents had gone to Virginia City to the gold fields. Um, and of course, female accomplishment being the, fem the female fair, Chicago being the feminist fair in many ways. Um, so here you see Montana's building here on the right, kind of an odd duck, I think. <laughs> Um, and then the famous silver statue that was basically sponsored by um, Clara McAdoo, who was the owner of the Spotted Horse Mine, um, and is famous, and that has a whole lore behind it too, that'll be in my book also, but you don't need to know it today. There's Clara McAdoo of Colson, Montana. She wasn't really liked, actually, she ended up going back to Detroit and kind of retired being on the board because people didn't really like her. Um, Lily Rosencrantz Tool, of course, the former first lady. And then we have even a daughter-in-law of the President of the United States from Montana. Like, this is how elite Montana is, is that one of their vice presidents at large appointed to the Board of Lady Managers was no less than Mary Harrison, um, who was married to the President's son, Russell. Oh, yay, Montanans, you're so cool. <laughs> All right, so Laura Spencer Howie takes over basically as the main point person in Helena that she's sending out all the letters. So most of my documents and I'll give credit to the Montana Historical Society. I am a recovering Bradley Fellow who's not, I'm not a completed Bradley Fellow, um, so that's still in process. 
Um, but I'd like to thank the, the, the collection of the, the, lady, the Board of Lady Managers records in Helena is just fabulous. And um, it, was just a, it was just like just immersing myself in wonder for, for weeks. And so Laura Howie is most of the letter writing back and forth to these women. And so Eliza Rickards, who from Butte, she's also um, a main point person also a former first lady, and she is communicating with a lot of these people. And it's Eliza Rickards that we have to credit for my connection to, to Emma. It's Eliza Rickards because I have to summarize here. So I have letters from women in all of these counties. So part of this project in Focusing on the World's Fair, I feel like I'm doing a Montana history of 1893 and people all over the state. So if you want to know who my people are, here they are. These are just some of them. This isn't even a total list. So if you see anybody on here that you know, please come see me. If you see anybody on here that you're related to or you're like a descendant of, please come see me. All right, and do you see who I have here? She's not on here. I don't have her on my list, but here she is. This is Mary Rome. This is, oh, that's mine. Oh. You have three more minutes. Okay. Four more minutes. Give yourself four more minutes. Oh. All right, you know um, Mary Ronan, of course, at the Flathead Agency, and she also, of course, her husband died right as the fair. He went to the fair. He came back and then promptly died, and so she couldn't go to the fair, but she sent Indian artifacts to the fair. She sent Indian artifacts. And here we go. Here's Emma. Emma, our famous victim of the Nez Perce War, is now the president of the Jefferson County Columbian Association. So my letters between Emma and Laura Howie reflect Emma's attempts to do these things on my list, these assignments of you need to find artifacts and you need to, you know, kind of rec recruit all of this female accomplishment from the women in your county. You need to really organize your women. And so I have three or four letters. Here's a couple of them. And and she signs it, Mrs. George Cowan. Of course, she did find out that her husband was alive and they were reunited. And now he's the county attorney. And so here you have her using her husband's letterhead for her letters to Mrs. Howie. And just to make that point that she is reflecting this elite class of women in Montana. All right. And a lot of her letters are actually unremarkable. She expresses what a lot of the letters say, which is really hard to get these women organized. It's really hard to get these women organized. Nobody shows up for meetings. Nobody will do their assignments. And I'm like, have things changed at all? <laughs> no. All righty. Um, what's interesting then is Eliza R. Rickards then, and I have uh, the, the rest of my project talks about Eliza and all of these different curios and these Indian artifacts coming in. And Eliza makes this point that Montana women have a great reason, basically, to be upset with Indians because, ta-da, Emma Cowan. And they use her as kind of like the poster child for, we've experienced the worst, our women have experienced the worst of Indian hostilities. And she makes this kind of superlative statement of, and Emma experienced in 1877 only those horrors that women can go through. And I'm like, oh, come on, Eliza, that's a little much. They weren't sexually assaulted, I mean, none of that. It was, there was none of that, but it was the terror of thinking that her husband was dead, of course. That was, I mean, that. But notice this um, from Emma in her 1903 memoir. So even though she didn't write about her experience until 1903, it was already known. She was known, and Eliza R. Rickards refers to her as the victim of the Nez 
Nez Perce kidnapping in 1893. So even as representing the fair, she was known as this quintessential pioneer woman who had been the survivor of the Nez Perce War. It occurs to me, she said at this writing, that the above mode of trading, she was talking about how the horses were taken, um, is a fair reflection of the lesson taught by whites. For instance, a tribe of Indians are located on a reservation. Gold is discovered thereon by some prospector. A stampede follows. The strong arm of the government alone prevents the average paleface, avaricious paleface from possessing himself of land forthwith. Soon negotiations are pending with as little delay as a few yards of red tape will admit. I love that. A treaty is signed and the strip ceded to the government and opened to settlers, and lo, the poor Indian finds himself on a tract a few more degrees arid, a little less desirable than his former home. The Indian has few rights, the average settler seems bound to respect. <coughs> and there's other quotes in her writing that um, reflect the sympathy. And I find it really interesting that in, in George's account, he's like, all I wanted was revenge. When I got home, I just want to go kill Nez Perce. And here you have her saying, you know, can you blame them? Can you, I mean, so you see this, some of this sympathy reflected in her writing. And so I'll end with this. You see them reflecting as their pioneer reminiscences. Here they actually made a trip back to the Yellowstone in 1901. This is the site of his shooting. So they did this kind of, let's go relive this horrible trauma because it's fun. And they got in, they got in the Montana Historical Society, and here they are in Spokane, Washington, where they lived the rest of their lives in the 1930s. So I'd like you to think about how the Nez Perce War and this fabulous lady, this very intricate and intriguing lady, Emma Cowan and the Chicago World's Fair all combine in Montana history. Thank you very much.